welcome to the Antifada, where forever's going to start tonight. Yeah. <laughs> Little reference to our Twitch stream the other night. If you didn't yeah. watch it, you still can, I believe. Uh, but, you know, we got to abolish capitalist time, obviously. So that's right. where that motto comes from. Yeah, if, uh, if you missed the formation of some new Antifada lore... You can find that lore on the Twitch stream where we decided that Bonnie Taylor's epic, epic pop tune, Total Eclipse of the Heart, is actually, uh, in case you didn't know, a uh, time abolition anthem. She is doing for, uh, she did for the 1980s what Bertolt Brecht did for communism in the <laughs> 20s and 30s. Did you know that, Terrence? I was unaware, but I see it. I, I see what you're saying. Um, yeah. Yeah, Total Eclipse <laughs> of the Heart. <laughs> no, you have no, to I'm listen to I'm, it. I really am. I'm looking up the lyrics now. I, it, uh, no, you're going to... Turn around. You're going to hear it in a whole new way. I really like so, it. Every now and then I fall yeah. apart, and I need you more than yeah. ever. I think he knows what the song is. She, she, it's a very popular karaoke uh, song. Yeah, I like But does he know the communist essence of the song? I don't, <laughs> but this does have a revolutionary sort of... Um, I mean, we're living in a powder keg, giving off sparks. I mean, yes, mm-hmm. that's about the proletariat. Yes. Wow, <laughs> on a sleeping volcano. <laughs> exactly, well, folks. For this, for this type of canonical lore and more, you can check out our new uh, Twitch stream, which we're going to be doing all of us once a week. We're going to be doing a big live show that you can check out. It went really well last time. And each of us are going to be doing smaller, fun little things throughout the week. So maybe the only admin thing we have to do before we introduce Terrence from the Trillbillies is say, go to twitch.tv slash the Antifada and you can watch us there. And we'll be announcing when we, you know, do the stuff with the thing. We need to... Terrence, hi. Hey, what's going on? Um, I, <laughs> no, I, I like the Twitch idea. We need to get in on that game, but it's like it's hard enough to get my co-hosts to record twice a week. It would be harder to get them to Twitch stream, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, it helps to have a standing date. It also helps for different people to like bottom line different things. So, like, if someone doesn't feel like doing it, they don't have to. Yeah. Um, it's you guys. Uh, you guys got Aaron back for a few days, and then he ended up back in the hospital. I know, man, shit. No, it's uh, lungs are weird, man. When you think about it, they're just bags of air, and you have to protect them. And um, protect yeah, them. If yeah, you, if they, they can very easily deflate, and so he's he's back in the hospital getting his lungs reinflated, or I think drained. God damn it. Yeah. No, it's it's fucked. That up. That man. He needs to take, he needs to rest. I know. Like, That's he what I've been said on the, they said, they shamed him on the Not Safe for Wonks show. Well, I guess, you know, in the context of, you know, bootstrapping capitalism, I guess it's uh, something to be proud of. But he was like trying to get them to bring him a microphone at the hospital. <laughs> and everyone was like, chill, dude, chill. You need to stop working long enough to get your lungs better. That is it's, dedication to the podcast cause. I he tell is you. dedicated to uh, to to casting. You know, <laughs> he's born to pod. Uh, 
Just for context, everybody, unfortunately, uh, Aaron from the Trillbillies, and you know him from online as Posadas Trap God, unfortunately got into a very uh, bad accident a couple of weeks ago, and he's been, I guess, in and out of the hospital now. I must say, too, talking about, like, dedication to your friends and your friends casting he uh called me the other day like on his way to the hospital he could barely breathe because he was supposed to do the twitch stream with us he's like bro oh i can't breathe i just want to let you know man i can't make i can't make the stream man i'm on my way to the hospital i really wish i could yeah, make he's it a sweetie. i was like dude oh, yeah. it's fine it's fine <laughs> yeah, he is the sweetest uh, guy. he's like the leftist podcaster version of the person who worked themselves to death at uber you yes. know, yeah. only he did it for for the struggle and the people <laughs> rather than the profits of capitalists. That's right. I'd say that's inaccurate. And you guys uh, and the Trilbley snatched him right up. You guys added him to your roster a, a month or so ago. Good we job. did. Yeah. Um, no, it, it's like we've been trying to get a fourth member for a while. And uh, and every time we've had him on, it's like, oh, we, we've had a blast. And so. Why not add him to the lineup? Maybe we'll have a fifth member one of these days, you know? You never know. We're expanding. Our powers are growing, that's, all of us. You love to right. see it. Maybe someday we'll just have one big super pod. <laughs> Trill of Fada. That's, honestly, that's what I'm uh, hoping we, you know, get. We need, like, a sort of, like, Wu-Tang, you know, where there's, like, 18 members. There's Maybe there's, like, a core of eight <laughs> members, but, like, you know, 27 hangers-on or whatever affiliates we're just waiting uh for our bob geldoff you know we need a bob geldoff to come and do like pod aid yes. or something like that like a big festival we can all come together as one and sing a sweet song together and then like create a 900 person uh live podcast it sounds oh, awful yeah. but you know <laughs> oh god the the number of times when you don't know if it's your time to talk or not Oh, magnified by thousand. Yeah, it would. Up, 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 up. Nobody would say anything. It would just wind up being an hour of silence because every time you go to say something, would... no, you go. Yeah. yeah, no, you go. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's uh, that would be an occupational hazard. What's up? Uh, go ahead, Jamie. Uh, <laughs> no, you go. Um, how's everybody feeling today? How's everybody doing? Yeah. I'm all right. It, I feel. That's like a fucked up question to ask people in 2020. I'm sorry. I mean, but at the same time, it's the more it's the most relevant question you can ask. Because uh, that's True. all anybody is doing right now is feeling. So, <laughs> yeah, feeling a lot, um, mostly by ourselves. That's right. um, I. Uh, I don't know, man. I've realized that uh, due to the wonders of monopolization in retail that I can order a science fiction book and it will come to me the next day if I buy it from Bezos. So I'll have to admit that uh, I've been monopoly cucked by capitalism, but I'm, I'm going through like a sci-fi every, every couple days that's keeping me that's, going. That's a good rate. I mean... Look at you. I just finished reading. I know this is... Um, I know how this is going to sound. But I already said it on the sh on the show and got pilloried for it, so whatever. But I just finished reading Infinite Jest, the Infinite Jest. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, that book wow, and I have of, uh, some history. You're part of Infinite Jest discourse I am. now. There's a whole discourse. I finished the entire thing. Uh, it's very Aww. it's very interesting. I'll say that much. I. I if I if I would have read it at age twenty, I think I I would have been a drastically different person. Um, 
I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad uh, thing. Uh, <laughs> so what you're yeah. telling us is that you feel like a depressed college kid. Yes, I do. Because that's who finishes Infinite Jest. <laughs> that's the old, depressed dudes in college. That's the only kind uh, uh, of person who does that. I have to say that I was a 20-year-old depressed kid in college when I finished it. And uh, the discourse came back, and I said to myself, do I need to ever reread this again? And I said, most certainly not. I will definitely not read it again. It was fine to do one time as, like, a 20-year-old, but uh, I'm past that now, I think. No, I'm not. You should read it once, maybe. I I, I guess I'm not past it. But I do feel like, for me to have an opinion on it, I needed to read it. So (laughs) That's fair. It's a real struggle. It's like 2,000 pages of uh, weirdness. Yeah, no. I did not finish Infinite Jest. I'm going to be honest with you. I tried to read it when I was like actually maybe in my mid-20s and I was like partying a lot. And uh, I don't know. I got like a third of the way through and I was like, I'm not a depressed college dude. I'm going to put this book down. I tried my yeah, best. It's, I will. It's for a demographic. It's for a real demographic. I will say I did read Gravity's Rainbow with my friends in a little reading group that we formed when back when I still read books for fun <laughs> before politics had completely taken over my brain. Right. Um, and I do think as like long, difficult, big books go, Gravity's Rainbow is a lot more fun to read. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah, I've never read, finished it, but um, but I will say that V uh, Pynchon's first novel is one of my faves. I've read it at least three times. It's a, it's a blast. It's also well, maybe I find him really difficult. I I picked up Gravity's Rainbow once a long time ago, and it utterly defeated me. <laughs> well, we're stronger together, so you know maybe you just got to do a reading group. Yeah. I'm I'm trying really hard to read Capital right now, and uh, it's like kind of slow going. But I've got a reading group with some comrades which is nice um i'm gonna try my best today to not be stupid i must say i have a bit of a hanukkah hangover oh. um i need to take personal responsibility for myself because you know i i knew i knew exactly what i was doing i did it anyway um like when are the jewish people gonna take personal responsibility for their crazy <laughs> hanukkah celebrations right we we know that dairy hurts our tummies but we eat it anyway we know we don't have the enzymes to process alcohol but we drank a bunch of wine and now i kind of feel like shit well the best remedy as they always say is podcasting right. so you're here now all right. What are we talking about today? Well, guys? um, we're gonna talk about a little thing called JD Vance. Haha. <laughs> um, mm. So I know it's like probably a little late in the game to be doing our Trillbilly Elegy episode. However, uh, I don't know. It really some of the things about this movie and this book like stuck in my mind, and I know that you guys at the Trillbillies are very well versed in the political economy of rural America, as well as you know J.D. Vance himself specifically as you know a shipbird and how he operates in the world. So my hope is that we can you know talk a little bit about the movie and also use that as a jumping off point to talk about some of the larger issues involved in this um, really uh, great work of bourgeois ideology. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds great. Sounds great. I'm all game for it. I mean, I've talked about it a lot recently, but that's that's actually a good thing because that means it's still fresh in my mind. I don't have to do any reading for it. Yeah. (laughs) 
It's the last stop on your tour. That's right. <laughs> and I know you just had on Mike Davis uh, to talk about the political economy of rural America. So you've got like the big brain now. That's true. I, I really am. I, I, um, I've got it all. It's right up here. I say that anyways. <laughs> well, that's why we brought on the best. Um, so let's uh, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, what the context of this work is. Jamie, you've got a summary for us. Yeah. So just you know, for people who haven't seen the book, seen the book or read the movie, haha. I did not say that on purpose. Uh, <laughs> woo. Uh, off to a great start. Um, it's it's sort of a feel good i mean it didn't make me feel good but we'll get to that no, in a it second. made me feel like shit <laughs> it's bad i mean it didn't, it's bad folks. it didn't make any i'm gonna guess it didn't make any of us feel good no i no. mean it's it's the thing about it which is weird because i've talked to a few people who have actually liked it i mean family members and stuff people who you know aren't really aware of how i feel about it or whatever and they're like yeah i saw this good movie recently and <laughs> and it's like, even if you sympathize with the politics, I don't understand how you could get through the movie because the movie is so disjointed. It's so slow. Nothing yeah. ever really happens. And also, like, I don't even know what it's about. You know what I mean? Like, ostensibly, it's yeah. like a biopic of this guy. But why him? What about his life is interesting? Yeah. Or you know. that, that's, that's, that's what I got from watching this, like... Basically, it felt like a Hallmark movie, yeah, you know. Yeah. And uh, I was trying to think to myself, like, why do I care? If I if I know who JD Vance is, and I'm like ideologically or politically predisposed to root for him, okay, I get it. But if I'm just like a normal person with no context, why should I care about this character? He's nothing yeah, to me. Well, you know? I think that is actually on my list of questions that I'm going to ask in a bit because it has been it's received fairly high ratings from audiences and low ratings from critics. <laughs> so that is, maybe we're just a bunch of coastal elites. I don't know. People's favorite, I guess. We, you know, we're, we're on the coast it, of uh, New York and Terrence is on the coast of Kentucky. Right. And uh, <laughs> we're all, we're out of touch with the average human. I don't know. But anyway, I got a little summary here. So it's supposed to be a feel-good uh, rags to riches tale about uh, this Horatio Alger figure, J.D. Vance, right. um, who grows up in Middletown, Ohio, after his family, his grandparents migrated from Kentucky. And basically, he climbed the social ladder to eventually become a well-paid lawyer and author of one book, the movie adaptation of which you are now watching. So... Uh, I read a little bit about the book. I didn't read the book, but it seems the book's uh, roughest ideological edges are somewhat blunted to fit in more treacle here. But um, <laughs> the basic message is there, which is uh, problems like drug addiction and poverty exist in white rural America because people don't take responsibility for themselves. Right. Um, there's not a lot of class analysis in this movie. Uh, however, I will point to one scene where uh, his mom, who's got a, an opiate problem, is getting booted from the hospital after she almost died from an overdose. And she doesn't have insurance. Even there, it is framed in terms of she says, I let it lapse, right? right, right Not right, like, yeah. there's no insurance that I can get. No, no, no. It's all, it's all her fault. 
Um, he maxes out every credit card he has to try to get her a bed in rehab where he only has enough money to put her in there for two weeks. Right. And then, you know, watching this, she leaves. What do you know? Uh, she's like, this is, this isn't going to work. Um, he never asks her what she wants, by the way, or why she's using heroin. Right. Although she, like, she's actually a really good person because in in this situation because she actually offers she offers it up to him like he doesn't even ask yeah. and she offers up some reasons anyway and he's like oh well, that makes sense um <laughs> you flash back to childhood he won't give his mom a uh, clean piss to help her keep her job which she's <laughs> which she's using to feed his spoiled yeah. bratty ass yeah. you know um he says to grandma you let her if because grandma's like jd right i think you need to give her your piss and grandma usually is like tough love grandma but even grandma is like yeah, no on. we gotta do this yeah. Yeah. and jd's like you let her get away with this how's she gonna learn and there's also a scene where grandma tells her you're gonna have to take responsibility so that is really the message throughout the film um so in the end, like, he has to go back for his big fancy job interview, right? He's at Yale Law School. And the film jumps between two different timelines, right? In one timeline, he's at Yale Law. He's going to get a job. He's going to be fine. Once you're there, you're fine. He's got a hot girlfriend, a hot Indian girlfriend. Way out of his league. Oh, yeah. Way out of his oh, league. Yeah. But, yeah, sidebar, he has a hot Indian wife in real life as well. And she's played by Frida Pinto in the movie and people are all like, Oh wow. How did this, you know, mediocre white guy with a bad personality who's not that good looking end up with this like beautiful Indian woman. And the answer is that she probably sucks too. And you need to stop essentializing people. Yes. Yes. Very, very likely that she sucks. So, um, anyway, he leaves his mom in this kind of rundown motel to detox after they leave the rehab with, you know, no medical monitoring, no group therapy, nothing and but her own can I, willpower. Can I jump in real quick and say that um, about this, this is about the part of the movie where I got so frustrated with yelling at the screen that I turned it off and fast forwarded to the last five minutes so I could see what happened. <laughs> it was literally unwatchable for me. Like I could not get through more than half of it. So this summary is as good for me as it is for yeah. everyone else. Well, you're welcome. Yeah. I watched it so you didn't have to. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, he's leaving his mom there. He stops her once because I guess she's got a little bit of heroin squirreled away and he takes it away from her. He's like, Mom, come on, Mom. It down stop, just toilet. stop. Yeah, just stop. You have to stop. Yeah. You just got to mind over matter. And his sister comes to take care of her because he has to go back for his big job interview. And now his sister has, you know, a job and children of her own as well. But I guess that doesn't matter because she's not doing something impressive like becoming a lawyer. Uh, and she, he goes back to New Haven for his big job interview. And the reason why this is okay in the movie's moral universe is that things like drug addiction are ultimately seen as, you know, the person's own responsibility, right. mind over yeah. matter. Right. He's never like, wow, fuck this system for not giving my mom health care. And no point 
does he think to leverage his new uh, community of Yale friends to say, uh, raise some money so that his mom can go to rehab, right. which he could probably do very easily. And, you know, he didn't think to do that in real life either, obviously. Um, this is, and this is done in like a symbolic thing too. all throughout the flashback sequences. There's this recurring image of his mother reaching out her hand and he will take her hand. I think it happens twice. But then in the final time in that hotel room, in that dingy, you know, uh, hotel room where she's withdrawing from heroin because he flushed her drugs, she reaches out the hand and he doesn't take it. And it's really bizarre because, as you're saying, Jamie, you're supposed to see that as a good thing. You're like, what? Mm. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> That's your mother, yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> so strange. So, yeah. So this is... This is exactly what I was going to say next, actually. Um, so in, in order to like have this ascension narrative, he has to sever all of his social bonds, yeah. right? Starting with his friends. His grandma says she's very like th this is the thing that's counterposed, right? This is the thing that he needs that makes him succeed, that everybody needs. Therefore, which is tough love. You know, the grandma's very mm -hmm. tough on him. She said, do you want to be somebody or not, you know, implication obviously being somebody means making money. He has to sever all of these social bonds, starting with his friends. You know, his grandma says he can't hang out with his friends anymore. She says that they're good for nothing. They're going to end up in jail or on food stamps, which again is framed as a matter of, you know, individual failing right. to say nothing mm -hmm. of the uh, financial incentives involved in mass incarceration in the first place, why we do this to people or, you know, drug addiction or whatever. Um, yeah, the Purdue family might as well have been funding this, uh, or the Sackler family <laughs> yeah. might as well have been yeah, funding this. Exactly. Yeah, seriously. And then it continues. Even his sister kind of becomes, and I feel like his sister never actually said this, but maybe she did. Um, I feel like, though, he's more ventriloquizing this same shitty ideology where he's like, oh, I, I feel like I should stay and take care of my family and his sister. She, he's like, oh, you've got kids and shit. And she says, oh, go. Don't use us as an excuse. Yeah. An excuse not to do the thing that he very obviously wants to do. Yeah, there was no... There was zero conflict. I mean, I, I, you know, I've said this, I think I said this on our show, but when I saw the trailer for this, I thought it would be a movie between Amy Adams' character and Glenn Close's character, the mom and the man mom. You can tell a pretty compelling story with that. And, you know, with the source material of Hillbilly Elegy, if you just kind of, you know, if you play with it a little bit, you can, you can take the source material and actually put some characters in it. But they did a very weird thing where they took a lot of the overt politics out. They left the more subtle ones, like as you're talking about, Jamie, the sort of like more individualistic bootstraps ones. They left all that. But they stayed eerily uh, close to the characters. And by that I mean they kept J.D. Vance. Like why keep the J.D. <laughs> Vance character? There's nothing likable about him. There's, I mean, if you're going to do that, why not give him, like, a quirky best friend or something? I mean, you know, there's nothing there. <laughs> it's like, well, I, it's, I, have, a, it's I have a theory he, on that. He produced the movie. Yeah. So, of course, he's going to be like, no, 
I want like he thinks that he he's a likable person, so like no one's gonna he's tell not, him uh, that he's, really he's not. not. <laughs> well, well, my my more like grandiose theory than that is that through the course of this film, right, the JD Vance type character not only is he an insufferable dork who's really bad at everything, like not just playing gin with his mom, but like not getting beat up. He's really shitty at that. <laughs> he's also really bad at like, you know, interacting with anybody, including his girlfriend. So he's like this total schmuck. But what he provides for us, the viewers of this, because he's his family, right, is from Appalachia. Am I saying that right? Appalachia? Say, you, I say Appalachia. Say sometimes. however you want, Sean. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> All right. So his, <laughs> his family is originally from Appalachia, but they but his particular nuclear family and the grandparents moved to Ohio. So they go from the holler to like an industrial like manufacturing community and they have presumably like decent jobs for as long as those are around. So JD Vance is like both of the holler but also not of the right. holler. So he provides for the viewer like their own experience of like being voyeurs into this particular world. He actually lives that. So he's like when he's so there there's a funny like when he's at Yale and he's going back to take care of his mother, you know, in between this job interview shit and like he's rushing to get there, he drives into into uh, Kentucky uh, with like his um, his like really shitty car and he's looking around. He's looking at like poor people hanging out on the stoop. He's looking at people on the street corner. He's looking at how dingy and fucked up everything is. And he had just came from Yale. So this is J.D. Vance giving the Yale gaze. Mm -hmm. To his former life, you know, he's taking the eyes for us and he's looking upon this community as like this aberrant thing. He understands it as aberrant, these people and their lives. And then we as viewers are also supposed to take his side of it, allegedly, because we're supposed to think that these people are all aberrant and, and, you know, uh, insufficient and make bad choices and shit. Wait, is Kentucky on the way to Ohio? I'm really (laughs) bad at geography. (laughs) Not from New Haven, Connecticut, it's not. So, are you sure he drives through Kentucky, or is he doing the Yale gaze on Ohio people? Oh, doesn't he go back to? Doesn't he go? Isn't he like back in the holler when he's doing the the funeral shit when he she dies? Oh, that's when his or the grandmother. That's dies. when his um, grandfather no, 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 yeah. dies, and that's a very fascinating dies, scene. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, when this movie was coming out, I thought, oh, we we're gonna get some good Eastern Kentucky. I mean, if you're talking about the history of cinema in this country, there is a storied, you know, legacy of Appalachia. You know, Appalachia exists as a real place in the world, but it also exists as a place in American cinema. I mean, got Deliverance yeah. and all these other films. So I was like, oh, we're gonna see, we're gonna get some good, another good entry into that. We'll be able to sort of have some fun with it. But this film does not even deliver on that. It gives you five minutes in Kentucky. The first four of those minutes are the first four minutes of the movie. And then the the remaining f- uh, fifth minute of that is this funeral scene where his grandpa dies. And it's a fascinating scene because they're driving through town. And J.D. Vance's mom takes a pill, you know, and he's looking around and, and there's all these people lined up on the street with their hats off. And, and he's like, Mamma, why why do they do that? Why do they take their hats off? Right. And he says, she says something like, because we're hill people, we respect the dead, or something like that. This That's exactly like, what she what says. Culture yeah, that does was so not res- what culture just pisses all over their dead people? I'm just like, right. <laughs> this is like it's it was ridiculous. It was barely an attempt. It was like the only attempt, I think, to like point out hill yeah. people as like having a separate or d- distinct culture from like the, even Ohio or let alone yeah, Yale. That's exactly well, right. So yeah, let's talk about the migration of this family. 
because in the movie it's painted largely as the result of um the grandma got pregnant when she was a teenager and that was a shameful thing so they had to leave kentucky and go to ohio but is that really why most people migrated from (laughs) kentucky to ohio like Oh, because they got pregnant too young? Or is, was there something other than slut-shaming uh, driving this? <laughs> the great material force of <laughs> slut-shaming. <laughs> driving generations of people from the holler into civilization. Oh, God. <laughs> um, yeah, no, uh, there have been a few large migrations out of Appalachia over the last hundred years. We're in the middle of one right now. I mean, I've lived in Eastern Kentucky for almost 10 years, and I have seen my community. I mean, it is phenomenal how much it's shrunk by. I mean, so we're in the middle of another great out-migration, but the biggest ones, yeah, I'd say they probably occurred in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. There's probably two main reasons for that. They're interlinking. Um, One is the mechanization of the coal industry, which put a lot of people out of work. And the second is the failure of the UMWA to uh, halt that process. And in fact, the UMWA contributed to Did the mechanization. Uh, the UMWA say what the, that is? Yeah, the United for Mine our, Workers. For our I'm listeners. Sorry. The, the Mine Working Union. Um, they contributed to the mechanization of the coal industry um, as part of a deal in the 1950s um, that you know, basically traded you know, some better wages and better hours for uh, allowing the coal operators to start um, converting the, you know, 100 years ago when you mined coal, you literally went in with an axe, you know, a bucket or whatever. You put it on a conveyor line and it goes out. Now coal mining underground is done with these machines called continuous miners. Um, and there's several different kinds. There's several different ways to mine coal. But that's what you do, and it takes one or two people to operate with these machines. Um, and then, you know, you have a roof bolting crew and it takes a couple of people to do that it, it you know 100 years ago it took hundreds of people to work in a mine now it takes maybe like 100 or something like that depends on the size mm. of the mine um and then and then there's strip mining you know which is mountaintop removal mining which also does not employ even nearly as much as underground mining does and so this this caused a lot of people to move away and you know they call route 23 out of eastern kentucky the hillbilly highway because there's several mm. cities along that. Columbus, Ohio is one of them, or Youngstown, Ohio, too, where J.D. Vance grew up, or Middlestown, wherever it is. And then, like, Detroit. Detroit was always the end point for the Hillbilly Highway because the auto industry there. And so, yeah, none of this is mentioned in the film. It's, it's actually fascinating because it's, when it is mentioned, it's done so on top of this... Um, Mon- uh, monologue from a preacher talking about it's in the you know opening minutes talking about like yeah. opportunity in America this is the dream you know the land of opportunity and all this um, and and you're right it's presented as almost this sort of like um, scarlet letter type situation where she has to leave the community <laughs> out of shame rather than yeah material forces and yeah, not just material forces unique to uh, Kentucky or West Virginia, but ones that track completely with the development and like disinvestment and investment of global capital. Absolutely. So like that, 
that's to me, I mean, maybe because I'm a Marxist is a much more compelling and interesting story. Maybe harder to make a Hallmark movie out nope. of, but certainly uh, more explanatory than like his grandma's a slut. Nope, nope. <laughs> it's more explanatory than ho grandma. <laughs> no, it's a very well known fact. If you get pregnant uh, out of wedlock or when you're a teenager and you live in Kentucky, you have to leave. <laughs> <laughs> no one in Kentucky has ever had a baby uh, who was not of age and married. That's we're we're calling this episode Ho Mima. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, wow! I mean, shots fired at JD Vance, um, which is fine because he sucks. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's lucky they're just metaphorical shots, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and he's definitely going to cut that out. Okay. Um, so yeah, so the biggest defense that I've heard of this movie, and we touched on it a little bit, right, is he's just telling his story, right? This is how it happened. This is how it happened for him. You know, his grandma had to leave Kentucky because she was a hoe, um, not because of the coal industry or anything like that, right? Um, But then I dug a little deeper and I found out that Vance works for the American Enterprise Institute, That's right. which is ah, yes. basically a neoliberal DC think tank that gets money from both the coal industry and the Sackler family. Yep. And that nice. makes the picture a little more sinister, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, in fact, you know, I, I was reading about this the other day. There is an essay. Um, people have, you know, they talk. So uh, another person on the board of American Inter- Enterprise Institute is Charles Murray, and you know, I, I assume you probably wanted to talk about him. Um, but he's, oh this, yeah, yeah, he's this guy who wrote this book called The Bell Curve um, in the '90s uh, that was best known for basically just, you know, throwing it out there that um, black people, people of African descent, might be intellectually inferior to white people. Um, and as a result, people say that J.D. Vance has, you know, taken that argument and transferred it to working white people. But the weird thing is, is that Charles Murray has actually been talking about that same thing for a long time. And you can actually find an essay. Uh, He wrote for the, the Wall Street Journal in 1993, Charles Murray. It's called The Coming White Underclass. Um... It's insane. I mean, you're reading something like this in the pages of, you know, this one of the most widely circulated, uh, you know, media outlets in the United States. And it's like something out of the Third Reich. I mean, but in it, in it, he says, you know, very explicitly that the social crisis in America right now, while he's writing this in the early 90s, is the problem of illegitimacy. And by that, he means single parent households where the mother is a single mother raising it and the father has, you know, is gone or whatever. Um, and, he's, and he proposes fixing it. And, and, and Hillbilly Elegy did not make sense to me really until I, I mean, obviously there were some things about it that, that I was able to identify and say, this is what this is. But until I read this essay, it made total sense. Everything clicked. And especially when you watch the movie. Because this entire essay is the, is the sort of germ or the seed of Hillbilly Elegy. And the entire essay is about how in order to stop this, in order to halt this uh, social crisis, which he says is going to lead to authoritarianism and tyranny and all this, we have to quite literally force women into relationships, into marriages with men, 
And if they don't want to do it, then we have to forcibly take their children. And he proposes cutting welfare to create orphanages to put these children in. Um, wow. And so, I mean, you kind of see this in the movie with uh, the mother. You know what I mean? The fact that she's a drug addict and she's raising this kid. And, and, and the movie seems to point the finger at her as the reason for all this misery and whatever. And when you go back and you read this essay, I mean, it's, it's right in line with it. And so that's, and that's the connection at the American Inter Enterprise Institute. Like, that, that's what these mm. people really believe. They're doing it subtly. Vance is doing it in memoir form to sort of shield himself from the criticism, as you were saying, Jamie, to be like, well, it's just a memoir. I'm just telling a story. Um, but, you know, that is ultimately what agenda, what larger agenda they're they're. There, that's interesting because there's like there's different neoliberalisms right we're, we're talking vaguely about a particular regime of accumulation that these people are upholding there's like the neoliberalism that arised in the 1970s that's sort of an emergent movement like of capital and within capitalism of uh you know business actors and decisions made about investment and disinvestment but then there's also parallel to that an ideological mission that is neoliberalism, which is making things like this, things like hillbilly elegy, seem like common sense, mm -hmm. right? By creating the theory and the ideology underpinning them. And then not in like a like a one to two sort of like simple to reconstruct way, but like in a very real way, kind of choosing for, selecting for the forms of like cultural entertainment and the forms of like um, – justification of this that fit well into that project and then can convince the average say netflix viewer to give this movie like a 80 or 90 percent on metacritic yeah that was gonna be a question that i asked as well like uh critics panned this movie which honestly i guess shows something about the sense that <laughs> critics have at least you know in terms of is this a good movie or not um but viewers really liked it yeah. uh it, it got like in the 20s and 30s scores um i looked on rotten tomatoes and metacritic but in the 80s from viewers like uh does that just show that bourgeois ideology has won <laughs> I, I don't you know it's interesting because i mean that's an interesting question because i, I myself throughout this entire thing have thought like what do people here in my community think about this movie to the extent that they've even seen it? You know, it's not like I go into my barber shop and ask my barber what he thinks <laughs> about Hillbilly Elegy, but I can't imagine it really resonates that much. I mean, mostly because there's really nothing about this guy you can identify with, with the exception of he has overcome these obstacles. You know, I mean, it. I, w I guess I will say that it does, in the early moments of the film... Um, you know, there's that scene where he's at that uh, dinner, um, mm -hmm. and he, you know, all the camera shots are, are like shot head on. It's supposed to, in their shot like handheld camera. It's supposed to like evoke this sense of panic. Like he's a fish out of water. He's this provincial backwater guy who's like mm -hmm. in this, you know, upscale uh, gala or whatever. And I guess I could see people uh, seeing that and you know relating to that, but. I don't know. For me, I mean, there's nothing really else in the movie. I mean, earlier you mentioned <clears throat> Horatio Alger, 
I mean, I've only I read I had to read Raggedy Dick. That's a Horatio Alger book, by the way. Raggedy Dick. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> an, an alternate name for the episode. An alternate, yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> Raggedy Dick and the Home Emo. Story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> right, but I had to read it in college for a course I was taking, and it's like. Even some of those like bootstraps, rag to riches guys in the earlier Gilded Age, in the first one, I mean, it's just like say what you want about them, they were ruthless, like genocidal, whatever. But like some of them really did come from just the most horrible conditions and working class conditions. And it's just like fast forward to now, I mean, so much capital feels like it's her, her, uh, hereditary, that it's inherited, like. They're not letting a whole lot of new people in. And to the extent that yeah. they do, it's people like JD, you know, who I guess have all the right cultural signifiers and are able to sort of walk the proper line there. But it's, um, I just don't really find anything relatable about him, even as a character. It's, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's one of the weird things about this, like you said, Golden Age, is that. You had the Carnegies and the and the Rockefellers. You had the Vanderbilts. You had this. Uh, what arose in the nineteenth, late nineteenth, and early twentieth century is called the Gospel of Wealth. Yeah. And the Gospel of Wealth was what the ideology that uh, ended up uh, Andrew Carnegie ended up giving away almost all of his wealth, like all of the great libraries in New York City, all of the universities in Pittsburgh. There's institutions throughout the country that were literally built like as philanthropy by Carnegie himself. Uh, this like ruthless fortune that he built for himself but um that was i mean there's a lot of reasons why we can think maybe it's different why like jd vance who i believe proposes that we need um venture capitalist money to help appalachia <laughs> like maybe the difference between then and now is that in the 19th and early 20th century you had a working class that was still coming into uh existence you had different class composition and you certainly had a lot let's say more vociferous class struggle. <laughs> yeah. So these, the, the, the ruling class had to create an ideology that justified it. And they had to like care about what workers thought, what all of us thought, because otherwise we were going to run bayonets through them. I don't know. Well, there doesn't seem that much of a fear of that nowadays. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think he's sort of his place in all of this is as the most operational tier of the professional managerial class, yeah. right? Which I realize has been overused as a term, but if it still has any meaning, it's the le the layer, the strata that manages uh, class conflict that mediates between uh, the bosses and the workers, right? The the yeah. capitalist class and the the proletariat right so he's doing this ideological work and he's not just managing the relationship he's like managing the management of the relationship mm. because <laughs> right. there are other ways to go about smoothing over the problems the contradictions of capitalism right like you could also have a welfare state um but the 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 class forces are such right now and the rate of growth are such right now that that's not possible. So right. he's sort of uh, he's playing the role of justifying this program. And that's sort of the way that he's able to uh, gain admission into the upper echelons of society. Yeah. And to add to that, I will say that J.D. Vance is kind of at the sort of bleeding edge of this sort of recent conservative movement, along with Josh Hawley, Tucker Carlson, etc., 
to appeal to the American working class. The weird mm-hmm. thing about it, I mean, and it is entirely, the point of it is entirely to manage the conflict there, but the weird thing about it is that when these guys talk about that, when they talk about, like, oh, the GOP is now going to be the class of the working, or the party of the working class and all this, they really do have a very specific kind of worker in mind. You know what I mean? In mm-hmm. in um, It's a worker that doesn't really exist anymore, at least in the aggregate, you know? So it's like they, they aren't... Like, J.D. Vance makes this point clear multiple times in the book. It's a little clear in the movie, but in the book it is explicitly clear his absolute disdain for service workers. He cannot stand mm-hmm. them. He can't stand having had work with them. Um, and so, like, that that's not who, you know, Tucker Carlson and Josh Hawley and J.D. Vance, they wouldn't be caught dead with a waiter, you know what I mean? Or someone who works mm-hmm. in a kitchen. They, they just, uh, they have a very specific idea of a worker that they want to appeal to. And, um, and in their minds, it is integral to that sort of managerial um, yeah. role on the working class. Yeah. And the mom is a nurse. Right, like yeah. what? What? Yeah. What view do you think he takes of uh, care workers in all yeah. this? Like, and, and and she's, I guess she's a bad nurse, right? Because she takes drugs and um, roller skates oh. through the hospital. Which I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That scene was incredible. I'm so glad I saw at least <laughs> that, that scene, scene awesome. because this guy is this guy's so uncool that he thinks that you like pop. <laughs> I don't know, 15 <laughs> milligrams of Percocet. And all of a sudden you're just going through the hospital, woo, yeah. just like skating yeah. around. Oh, I'm crazy. This is so much fun. And then you get fired for it. I don't know. Very unrealistic portrayal. If drugs did that, maybe it'd be No, cooler, like he's never, sorry, he's never asked his mother a single question about herself. Because if he did, he would know that nurses aren't taking Oxy to party. They're taking it to get through their grueling ass shifts yeah, without, it, you know, yeah. wanting to fucking kill themselves if you work 18 hours a day guess what that does to your fucking back you know what i mean like oh, or yeah. your knees like big time i don't know well the opiate crisis again is in the background of all of this but with no context whatsoever and i think the opiate crisis and what the sackler family did which was not just create this highly potent and addictive form of pain quote-unquote relief it also spread that like through propaganda with doctors and like, propaganda in the journals saying that this is somehow non-addictive yeah. and giving out free samples to all sorts of medical professionals throughout the country saying this is the hot new thing and then producing like billions upon billions of dollars off of that addiction and then of course when that addiction becomes clear by like the early to mid 2000s then selling to those same medical professionals the solution to that with Suboxone yep. right which keeps people like on opiates but like at a, a safer or whatever rate like these people are fucking ghouls like these people are monsters these people are bigger criminals if you look at how many lives have been lost and how many lives mm-hmm. have been destroyed I, I'm, I, I can't think of a greater fucking criminal than this Sackler family and they got away with it yeah. Yeah, yeah. and they got away with and- it and JD Vance doesn't give a shit he's not interested in that he's interested in the, the nurse who ends up like stealing a Percocet here or there because she's in brutal pain from working like double shifts right. and shit like that and then ends up making the poor personal choices that we see in this movie that lead to him having to be the fucking hero and like god forbid he has to wash some dishes sometime at yeah. Yale or whatever yeah. then gets to look down on his fucking family it's bullshit these people are fucking monsters they're ghouls they're demons they should my they should something in minecraft they should parody, <laughs> 
parody um, themselves in Minecraft. Yeah. That's all. And like even the progression of heroin, right? Like we know that a lot of people get addicted to pills uh, because of what you were just talking about. Over prescription, overwork, all of these things. And then they switch to heroin because it's cheaper. Yeah. And easier to get once, you know, once the government did start cracking down on these prescription pharmaceuticals. And he still he still frames it as like her just being a dumb bitch. He's like heroin mom. Really? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, that's the same thing that Sacklers have been selling legally. Right. For 20 yeah, years. I, I, I mean, this might be a good place to sort of talk about rural political economy because the opioid epidemic is something that I've been fascinated by as a political watchword, as a sort of uh, dog whistle or whatever for a long time. <clears throat> Mostly because the only people that talk about it, really, are conservatives. The liberals, mm. the Democrats don't talk about the opi opioid epidemic. They may reference it here and there, but conservatives are actually trying to do something about it, and that should scare the shit out of you. Um, at least in my state and in, in some of these other southern states, they are proactively trying to do something about it, and it's not good. The opioid epidemic is a fascinating sort of factor in rural political economy and really just in, in um, you know, heartland or, you know, industrial belt political economy in general, precisely because throughout the last four decades, where, so where I live anyways— Talking earlier about that out-migration. The out-migration was caused by massive unemployment due to mechanization, people put out of work. What this created was a huge shift in the gender economy here. So now, you know, whereas three or four decades ago, most people in the formal economy were males, they were working in coal mines or timber jobs, whatever. Now, most of the people in the formal economy are, are women. They work in service jobs. They work as nurses. And again, this is just in the rural community I live in, in a lot of places in Appalachia. Usually when that happens in history, when you have a huge change like that, you will see some sort of resulting change in the sort of political structure or in, or in the politics mm. of the, the, the sort of dynamic in which that occurs. But that didn't happen. And I think the reason it didn't happen is because at the exact same time it happened, these communities were flooded with pain pills. And so that did two Ooh. things. One, it created a villain, you know, a sort of other that, you know, all these communities had to look out for and say, um, you know, well, we can't address these other issues like uh, unemployment and poverty and all this. We have to tackle this right now because these are super predators and they're fucked up on drugs and they're roller skating through hospitals and we have to deal with that right now. And the second thing that did... Stop them before they skate ex again. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the second thing that that did is that opiates, the specific drug of, of an opioid, what does it do? It is, the most, it is one of the most alienating drugs out there, in my opinion. Um, mm -hmm. It's not like cocaine. You don't. I mean, you, it's like when you take cocaine, that's a party drug. You know, you want to talk to other people and be in fellowship with other people, for better or for worse, yeah. whatever it is. <laughs> usually for worse. For, usually for worse. <laughs> right. But opiates are not well, like. They'd have a lot. No, they'd have a lot more really bad record labels and bars in West Virginia <laughs> if they had been on cocaine instead. Exactly. But anyways, go on. <laughs> exactly. But opiates are not like that. Opiates make you um, antisocial. 
They make you not want to really hang out with other people. Um, and I think that that has had a huge impact on the social fabric. Um, and so, uh, and, and, and so if you've lived in one of these areas in the last for three or four decades, you've seen pretty much every aspect of the social fabric just be completely revolutionized. I mean, in a way that would be hard to explain to other people. And this is kind of, this is weird, honestly. Like, a lot of people live in the countryside because things aren't supposed to change that much. But if you look at the mm. last couple decades, like I said, it has just been, it, it's been so rapid, it's hard to even wrap your mind around. Um, but, you know, none of this is covered, obviously, in the, in the J.D. Vance retelling of it. But it's also just not really covered in any of the accounts we have of rural America and, and you know, what's yeah. going on there. Now, it's interesting because uh, people are familiar with, um, obviously, the, the New Deal. And people are familiar with the next attempt, which was the Great Society, which was partially formulated under Kennedy, but really in the mid-1960s mid, mid and into the late 60s by the Lyndon Johnson administration as this attempt to deal with extreme poverty, to eliminate it in the United States. And I feel like to the extent that people know about it, they think about inner city poverty, which was one half of the equation. But the other half of it, especially with Robert Kennedy, who was really, you know, serious and upfront about this, was places like Appala Appalachia, was places, was rural poverty in this country. And now, and I think this is an interesting thing about the movie, is that, you know, we're allowed to get this brief snapshot of the kind of rural community and its degradation that you're describing, Terrence, right? But like only as these outside observers as something strange, like walking into a zoo and seeing these strange creatures doing strange things, because it's not upfront. Democrats aren't talking about to the extent that Republicans do. They say that we need to like increase uh, the power of faith communities yeah. and we need to do personal responsibility. Democrats say that too, right? But like any conversation we have is completely distorted. And so we don't typically even talk about it ever. It's like it's not happening in this country. Absolutely. I, yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Jimmy. Oh, just going to add, like, yeah, Trump name checks the opiate epidemic all the time. Yeah. And um, I can see why to some people that would seem like a more uh, a more empathetic or more like a, a more directed at them politics than a politician that never, ever mentions it. Trump was really good at like calling out real issues like deindustrialization and globalization of jobs, certainly the opioid crisis and things like that. It's just that he was too much of a lazy jerk off to really even know what to do about them. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's why a lot of people, if you look at who voted for him, you know, both times they were in these rural communities because at least they had somebody who they'd seen on TV before. So they relatively trusted him who was talking about these issues. And now that he's gone, I'm not sure that people are going to talk about it again. It's just going to go memory hole. Yeah, I mean, you know, as you mentioned earlier, Jamie, we had Mike Davis on the show recently, and he was talking about how after the 2016 election, he picked 15 communities in like the Midwest, the sort of you know post-industrial Rust Belt, and in you know 15 communities that went for Trump, and you know sort of went back and looked at newspapers and archives and things that had happened in those communities in the years leading up to it, and like all 15 of them had a major plant close or major factory. Or something, you know, some major economic event had occurred in those places. And and you're right, Trump mentioned it. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I mean, it's, you know, obviously he's just so self-centered and you're right, an idiot, he couldn't do anything. 
he wouldn't do anything about him. Um, but it is scary because there are now um, conservatives who, who are, I think are trying to perfect that message and are trying to harness that sort of rage. Um, yeah. And that's not good. No. Well, Very Democrats bad. are doing the same thing. And I, I want to talk a little bit, too, about like why this movie appeals to liberals as well yeah. as oh, yeah. uh, conservatives. Oh, yeah. But um, like I wasn't J.D. Vance call himself a liberal. Isn't he a Democrat <laughs> or no? Am I crazy on that? I, he, he does the um, I think he'll do the sort of mealy mouth like I'm a pragmatist type thing. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think he uh, fully says one way or the other. All right. Like Sorry, Jamie. I, 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 I get kind of like never Trump for vibes from him. Yeah, but me too. Um, me too. I don't know. He like he wanted to watch Al Gore on CNN. Right. That's pretty liberal. <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> Twice in that in that movie, they showed him as like a 13 year old boy like Mima. Al Gore's on TV. Don't turn it off. <laughs> and she's watching Terminator 2 instead, like a badass. Yeah. Oh, he wanted to watch the thing about Monica Lewinsky, too, which, you know, fair yeah. enough. Um <laughs> So, yeah, so there was an article in the Harvard Business Review that said uh, Joe Biden won back the white working class in the Rust Belt. And, you know, they define winning back by a few percentage points because that is the amount that the swing vote ever fluctuates by. Um, And it said that he won them back by going there frequently. Um, Hillary Clinton didn't. Um, So he went there. He talked about jobs and reindustrialization, which is, you know, Rich coming from a guy who loves NAFTA. And sure. most importantly, treated working class whites with respect. Oh. And these examples that she uses are 100% rhetorical. There is no policy involved to back it up. And it, it works. So, like, what does that say about our politics if that's all you have to do to, quote unquote, win back the white working class? And also, later in the piece, I will add, she cites um, Catherine Kramer's The Politics of Resentment, uh, which is the book about the white working class, um, saying she found opposition to Obamacare, even by people in obvious need of medical care, because Obamacare was too expensive to fit with their families' budgets. Quote, with all of the focus on covering the poor, these folks in the fragile and former middle class felt left out again, which seems to contradict the previous paragraph, right? Like, first you're saying, oh, all they need is some rhetorical pandering, but then, oh, wait, they opposed Obamacare because it was too expensive. What's, what the fuck is going on here? Is this just depressing, the, the most depressing thing that you've ever heard? I mean... To the extent that it's true, which I don't know, I'm going to need to see some strong paperwork because, I mean, did Biden even leave the bunker at all during the election? <laughs> Didn't seem like that. No, he was in the Wilmington, Delaware bunker. Yeah. Well, Clint, Clinton set the bar very low. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're, you're right. I mean, just even mentioning that they exist might have been enough. Uh I mean, I still think it's true. It's true in my community anyways that the vast majority of people still don't vote. Um, That, you know, I live in a county with about 30,000 people in it, and I think only about 7,000 people voted. Um, And so, I mean, I would assume it's probably true for these same people. And if you're a voter, you've probably been plugged into it for a little bit. And maybe you noticed that Trump didn't deliver on these sort of anti-NAFTA or whatever stuff that he said he was going to do. I mean, like, it shouldn't be lost that 
there really were a lot of sort of Rust Belt communities that went from Obama to Trump in 2016. This mm. was a real phenomenon. And so I could easily see those same people going back to Biden. Um, to the extent that they did it uh, either because of rhetorical gesture or some sort of, um, you know, expression of their material uh, needs or whatever, it's really difficult uh, for me to say, uh, but... I mean, I don't, I don't know. What do you guys think? Because for me, this just is another example of how uh, politics are sort of locked into this weird sort of uh, oscillation back and forth between things that don't really matter. And uh, yeah. I, I don't know. No, I'll, 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 I'll give that one to you. I mean, I, I think that uh, part of the reason why we don't have this conversation have the conversation much about electoral stuff on this podcast is not just because like all of us are pretty tired of this like meaningless back and forth and all the cultural signifiers but also because it, it seems to not in real terms but in terms of how people feel it seems to be um like less and less connected to like actual you know how people actually feel and what they actually want out of life yeah. and like i don't know man um there's like Something is like is striving to be born right now, and it's not it's not represented by Biden. It's not represented by Trump. It's um, like I feel like politics right now is like is, is it's just like I'm going to sound really dumb here and like really trite. But like I like got a hamster wheel now. We're just kind of like going over the same sort yeah. of like back and forth cultural signaling. Mm-hmm. I understand your pain shit that we were in the 1990s. You know, we yeah. haven't got out of that. yet. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what's so depressing to me about uh, having to talk about this stuff every day on the majority report. If you're still listening, you're a real head. You're not going to be a fucking Karen and try to get me fired from complaining about my job. Um, Like, yeah, it is so it's really hard to explain to liberals because people like their politics are in crisis right now. Yeah. Even though Biden won, it was not an emotionally satisfying victory for them. Uh, They do not control Congress. They they probably they may or may not control the Senate. They're they're looking for uh, any shred of hope that their ideology will allow them to have. And one of those shreds of hope is that like what we were just talking about, like, Oh, working class, white working class people are shifting back a tiny few degrees towards the Democrats. Um, And they, they're trying to find something hopeful in that, like, oh, they're voting for their interests, for their material interests or whatever. And it's really hard to explain to them that people can be depoliticized and still vote. Yeah. People can be depoliticized and still vote for Democrats um, mm-hmm. if they're doing it because they've just been um, pandered to in really hollow ways and are engaging with politics the way, uh, you know, consumers would engage with something they saw a commercial for on TV, you know? Yeah, right. absolutely. I, I will say this. <clears throat> I, you know, I mentioned this on the on the show. I think I may have told Mike Davis this as well, but I was like at the doctor's office when they announced that Biden had won, and it was so surreal. I mean, it was the entire the entire room, like the tension was just raised, you know, um, you know, tan- tangibly. You could feel it. Uh, and I was talking to this woman who worked behind the desk, who I know for a fact um, is a good person. You know what I mean? Like this is this is a person who has helped me, uh, you know 
helped me when I didn't have health care, helped me pay, you know, work out some sort of deal with the sort of, you know, never looked down at me and condescended to me about any of that, um, who I've always had good conversation with. And she uh, was, you know, she was really sad. And she was talking to her coworker uh, over this. And she, you know, she was expressing this, like, I don't know what we're going to do. Like, my husband's a coal miner. Like, I just feel like we don't know what's going to happen now. She was expressing, like, genuine concern and about the future, or, you know, uncertainty about the future. And, um, and, and it's just phenomenal to me that the Democrats would write off a person who has those kinds of concerns um, just because they don't really see anything in front of them worth voting for, and so they have to go with a guy like Trump. I'm not, I'm not making excuses for Trump voters. Most of them are piece-of-shit racist. I mean, don't get me wrong. But there are genuinely people in this country who, faced with um, a, an option— if you have two options in front of you, and one of those guys is telling you, I'm going to keep your job, and the other one is saying, I'm not going to keep your job, like, what are you supposed yeah. to do? I mean, granted, again, I, I mean, I know Trump is, is who he is, but like, I guess what I'm saying is those people can be reached. I, I don't yeah. know how you do it necessarily. I don't know if it has to be mediated through some sort of cultural force or whatever. I don't think so, though. I mean, I think that they really can be reached in some way. Um, Obviously, we're not going to figure that out here, but um, what's amusing to me about the Democrats is they see that and they're like, oh, you know, why? What, what's the deal there? And so then they use someone like J.D. Vance to sort of explain it to them like, oh, these, these people, they, they, like making, they like being able to make money and stay in their houses. And they're like, wow. Hmm. Really? They they like having a salary and a paycheck. <laughs> like it's like they need someone yeah. to tell them that human beings exist or something like that. You know, yeah. and that's and that's well, what it feels well, they can yeah. see the darkness in a you know white working class person or whatever voting for Republicans, voting quote unquote against their interests. But they can't see the darkness when a working class person um, votes for a shitty corporate Democrat yeah. because they are also convinced that it is in their interests. And I'm not like one of those people who thinks that Democrats and Republicans are exactly the same, but it is still quite dark to see. And um, I don't think that the liberal explanations for these things really hold up under scrutiny. Um, just just one example, like they really they really like to act like like, you know, um, working class people voting for Trump or whatever is just it's purely culture war stuff. Yeah. It's just racism or it's just, you know, this sense that we're we're in a zero sum game and people who aren't white men have made some gains and we're going to have backlash against that. And I'm sure that's part of it, but it, it really breaks down, especially in the most recent um election results where you see, you know, working class Latino communities in the Rio Grande Valley uh, breaking for Trump. Right. And I, there are a lot of factors. And I'm sure I'm sure that cultural stuff is one of them. I'm sure that anti-black racism plays a role, uh, especially like with the uprising going on right now. Like I've, I've spoken to, to comrades of mine who are from there who say that this is a real thing. But also um, the Center for the, the Border Patrol is a huge employer in that part of the world. And people are concerned about their jobs. Oh, I, I'm I was bo um, 
I'm, I'm from a small town called Hobbs, New Mexico, which is in southeastern New Mexico. It's basically West Texas. It's predominantly Hispanic. And it goes for Trump every... I mean, it goes for conservatives every single time. I mean, the majority of people there are conservative. And it's... I mean, you're right. There are elements of, like, racism and these other things. But it's mostly just because the only industry there is the oil industry, you know? And so, mm. like, that's, that's yeah. all it is. Makes a whole yeah, lot of sense. The, like, to tie a lot of these threads together, like, uh, Terrence, you were talking eloquently about how you had over the last generation or two, like these epochal changes to Appalachian to rural poor communities in the United States, but you never had the coalescence of some sort of social or political form that could actually do anything about it, right? There was the the union, the miners union did exist, but I presume that they were stuck with the same issue that say the longshore union was, which is that they knew that the technology was, was changing. By the time the 1970s came and the end of the wildcat strikes, you no longer had leadership that could even imagine that you could change the relations of production yeah. that that you would like enter into the prerogatives of management and start to change the way that you know that industry or manufacturing uh operated uh you your only choice at that point in time for these coal jobs was simply to feather bed as much as you possibly could like get whoever's left over as much as they possibly could but in rural communities which are you know, somewhat cut off, or in the case of Appalachia, often very cut off from the rest of the world. What other jobs are there to replace that? Like what we're talking about now with like the Biden voter versus the Trump voter voter is is very much a Trump voters as well. Trump voters and voters yeah, <laughs> is a is a is a material politics completely insufficient to deal with the material conditions that exist. Yeah. And so, of course, people are de depoliticized. And even if they believe that Bernie Sanders should do these things, I don't think a lot of people like believe that he even could do it because they have no evidence in their entire lives and their parents' lives that anything could be done in the United States because ultimately, like, they're right. With this constellation of forces we have right now, what could really yeah. be done to help Appalachia out? Right, if you're talking about, like, a Green New Deal, sure. But I just... I don't believe that we're going to be able to go in with like a trillion dollars of government money and rebuild these communities and bring back those jobs. It's literally not on the table. So we can't blame people for being yeah. cynical about yeah. the way that they vote. I, I mean, I absolutely agree. Um, I mean, human beings, we take evidence and we make a conclusion based on that evidence. That just seems sort of like a truism. And it's like, if you have no evidence for this working at, at any point in your lifetime, why the fuck would you try? I mean, like, you know what I mean? It just, it makes total sense to me, but it really is bizarre when I talk to liberals who, um, you know, they get so exasperated or, or frustrated or pissed off or condescending or, you know, especially the ones that are like, we got to cut Kentucky off. New York subsidizes it or whatever. <laughs> oh, my God. Just, oh, I hate that yeah. discourse. <laughs> it's just like, I mean, it's yeah, just or like, the idea that you can't put money into races in red states where your Democrats are probably going to lose anyway. Oh, right. you know, with the exception of Amy McGrath. Right. 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 Exactly. I'm, I mean, it's just if you had no evidence, I mean, for politics as it exists electoral politics or whatever changing anything about your life why the fuck would you engage in it seen from that perspective it is shocking how much support bernie actually did get in some of these places mm -hmm. you know what i mean like mm -hmm. considering that people yeah. are that jaded they still were like well maybe maybe something might happen yeah yeah or and we haven't yeah go ahead. 
Or I'm talking about left liberals now, but they'll point to some um, program that's, you know, necessary, but insufficient. that makes poor people's lives slightly less terrible, like um, Medicaid, like the Medicaid expansion and say, well, you know, if they just were more educated about how the Medicaid expansion is helping them, they definitely would vote for Democrats. They'd make this utilitarian calculation with their material interests. But leaving out the bigger picture where... Like Medicaid is a perfect example. You're still going to be poor. You literally have to be extremely poor to, to get, get Medicaid, Medicaid. Yes. in the first place. Not No vote that you cast is going to turn your life from the life of a poor person into the life of someone who's not poor. So mm-hmm. on that level, it's, it's really not hard for me to see why that wouldn't be a big enough motivator. <laughs> well, and, and to even take that step even further... What's even crazier is that when they designed, this isn't true for Medicaid, Medicare, but it is true for the ACA, that they literally went out of their way to remove all of their fingerprints from it, to to basically design the ACA in a way that make it seem partisan and like it didn't come from a specific party, the Democrats and Obama. I mean, it's just like, I know it's colloquially called Obamacare, but they really did try to build into it these sort of uh, measures that would conceal their involvement in it. It's like they don't even want mm. that. You know, they don't even believe like, <laughs> that they would yeah. do that. Well, well, maybe this is a way to kind of to get us to a conclusion on this, because I think that uh, we're all right. All three of us are right about the state of electoral politics. Yeah. And I think it's pretty clear that we all feel like it's kind of a dead end, certainly right now. But um, the... Interesting thing is that we saw a tremendous, a couple of years ago, a tremendous wave of worker struggles. And they happened, of course, uh, by teachers uh, in these quote unquote red states uh, in Appalachia, in West Virginia. Um, it seems that those have subsided for now, in, lar- in large part because they won, right? right? The teachers' wildcat strikes did very, very well, right? But I think one of the issues that we personally have, and certainly the liberals and conservatives and like mainstream media has, is this reification of class, right? So that when we're talking about class, we can only understand it as like, you know, J.D. Vance's father who went to go work in the mill or the coal miner in Appalachia. It just is. You know, it just yeah. It's a natural like, category, right? It's a natural right. category, and I think that all of the all, all of our listeners will know better than that. But I guess maybe the question is like, how do we orient ourselves now, knowing that we can't live by or act by the the reified, bizarre um, notions of working class that were are given to us, and that people to a certain extent even self ascribe to themselves. Um. It's a tough one. Yeah, no, it's, (laughs) you know, I don't know. Um, I think that me personally, if I'm looking at anything that's worked in the last uh, couple of years, it's like, as you said, the sort of teacher strikes, wildcat strikes. But I mean, even, um, even down to the most basic shit, like, uh, well, I call this basic. It's not basic in any ways, but like, burning down police stations um that's pretty Mm, tight um back to basics yeah it's basics right (laughs) and it's um and even more importantly it's a symbol uh people need to be able to see something burning um because it activates something within you um and uh and so that to me is is an important way to sort of get around some of these preconceived ideas to what we have i think a big thing a big reason why um you know, I work with, for example, 
I work, I do this radio show on Monday nights where we take phone calls. Where the community I live in is surrounded by prisons. Um, it's another thing I guess we didn't talk about over the course of this, but a big part of rural political economy was a massive construction boom in prisons in the 90s. So where I live is surrounded by prisons on all sides. And so the radio station I work at, or volunteer at, we take phone calls from family members of those prisoners, and we broadcast them back out so that the prisoners can hear it. Um, and this, is, this helps them because if you're in a prison, you have to pay uh, to call out of it. Um, they quite literally have the market cornered. You know, they have a captive market, and they can charge you however much they want for you to talk to your loved ones. And so, this is just a service we provide. A lot of the people I talk to who call in to the show, and the prisoners themselves, I've known these people for years. They wouldn't necessarily call themselves abolitionists. Um, I mean, I think the idea of uh, abolition is very scary to most people. Um, that does not mean necessarily that they don't want it. I think that you have to present it in a way that makes it seem feasible. I don't know if in the days leading up to the French Revolution that most people would have considered themselves abolitionists of the monarchy. <laughs> but once shit starts right. rolling, and then you start seeing the sort of new vistas of what's possible, and you say, like, do we need this? You know, what, what is it? Then I think you can start to, um, I don't know, you could start overturning some of these things. And so, I don't know, it's, I think that kind of what you're saying, Sean, it's, it's important that we don't sort of get trapped in these um, rhetorical, ideological, uh, you know, buzzwords or, or phrases or whatever, um, and that we realize that, you know, this is a process and, um, and it involves just as much actual, whatever, the, you know, call it praxis or whatever, action, as it does theorizing, and um, and 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 that is truly what uh, you know breaks down people's conceptions of the world, allows them to imagine new ones, and um, and I think that that's the most powerful thing we could be doing. Right yeah, we're, and this we're, is why Trailbillies is our sister podcast. Hell yeah! <laughs> I mean, that is so important. And it's like, it's also because, uh, okay, people, I, I feel like very bullied by libs lately. It's coming to a head, but uh, people will say shit to me like, oh, well, how do you expect these people in these places to, you know, fight for their rights as workers or fight against the bosses or the system when you can't even get them to vote for a Democrat? Like that is not necessarily a step on the way there, you know? No, no, no honestly, really in my conception of things, that's a good thing. If they're not voting for yeah. Democrats, yeah. like that's that actually is a better situation, a better uh, landscape <laughs> than you know. If, I'm if they with were you hundred percent. If they were fully tied to the Democratic Party, then that would be very bad for us. I think. Yeah, I certainly agree. Um, Jamie, go. I okay. I I really like where this is going, so I'm going to bring it back around to one more depressing question because I am the Terrence <laughs> of the Antifada. Good. Um, because <laughs> I I feel like. I, I kind of let this go by without really hammering on it, which is that, you know, this Charles Murray ideology is just it's horrifying. It's like Nazi shit. Yeah. And um, like the idea that that could be admitted into any sort of polite company and that, you know, J.D. Vance could sort of um, be like the left wing of that and people would just accept it 
is kind of mind-blowing to me, right? But he does seem like sort of a woke version of Charles Murray, yeah. right? Like he's uh, he's doesn't like Trump. He's married. He's got children with an Indian woman, you know? Right. He's like polluting the white race or whatever. Like, is this just kind of a more woke or liberal-friendly wing of this uh, of this like really bloodthirsty ideology and why do liberals accept it? Yeah, I think that um, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's a more public friendly and more woke um, presentation of these ideas. I think liberals accept it because they deeply want to. I was talking to Tom about this earlier today. I think liberals see the vast majority of people in Heartland America as like NPCs, right? They see them as characters in their own sort of like video game that will facilitate their own, you know, either enlightenment or further movement on the trajectory or upward more mobility to help them in their savior quest or whatever the fuck that they're looking for. And anybody that can help them do that, can help them understand those NPCs. To, that they can get on board with their thing, I think is welcome to them. And so maybe J.D. Vance has some ideas that they're not so on board with, but he is doing the Lord's honest work of being the explainer. And so I think that that is what his appeal is to them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. God damn it. All right, now I want to go back to talking about burning down Army recruitment centers. <laughs> Something has to burn. That is another good motto. I think we're going to do, uh, we gotta do no, a T-shirt. even... I think it wasn't something has to burn. I think it's people need to see something yeah. burn, <laughs> which is a nice, a nice like radio friendly way to just sort of like make it neutral and make it acceptable. Yeah, no, we're to not censors out there on the world. We're not yeah. telling people to do it. We're telling people to see it. You don't even have to say that like in Minecraft at the no, end. It, you just say people need to. It, it's it's literally like the oldest symbol of civilization is fire. I mean, it's it's the yes. thing we gather around. It's the thing that we... It's purifying. Yes, exactly. We draw inspiration <laughs> from it. We stare into it. We see visions. And I think that, like, seeing a large symbolic thing burn, I think, does something to people. So I don't know. I think that's my case for it. No, no. I'm with you on that. Jamie has a t-shirt idea coming out of that. So <laughs> we'll do the... What t Forever is going to start tonight uh, one. This is also lore from the Twitch stream, which is going to have Jamie singing a song with a cop at a, uh, at a dare rally. We're going to have the t-shirt for that. And then we're going to have people need to see things burn t-shirts. <laughs> and uh, maybe yeah. like a... We didn't a start Trill the fire. Anti -fada crossover yes. thing. We didn't start the fire, but we love to that's see right. it. That's right. That's right. That is right. <laughs> yeah, I... I told that same story when I was at you guys' live show in Atlanta. It was super fun. But then I told it the other night on the Twitch stream and showed... I have the picture in my house. So I showed everyone the picture because, uh -huh. you know, Twitch is a visual medium. And um, we came up with some really good ideas for t-shirts. That's good. Yeah. I, I, and we well, got another one too. I can't wait to get one. <laughs> well, this is as good a place to uh, wrap it up as any. Terrence, uh, thanks so much, man, as always, for coming on. We always look forward to and enjoy doing content with you, and uh, I guess we'll do it again soon. Let's do it again soon. I always have a blast with you guys. Oh, hell yeah. Thank you so much, Terrence, again. And, um, you know, keep those fires burning. We, we, will. <laughs> we will certainly do that. You do the same.